Good morning, everyone. Please stand and join us. We'd like to welcome you here on this Mission Sunday. And as you may or may not know, on Mission Sunday, anything can happen. So we're going to sing some Spanish. We're going to sing a little Urdu. It's going to be great. So I want you guys to prepare yourselves right now to move. Got to move. Got to be able to move. The first song we're doing, we've done before, but it's been a couple years. And if you don't know it at all, it's in Spanish. So you can either sing Spanish or you can just stand there and dance and enjoy the song. And then we will just kind of go on from there. So welcome. Let's praise our God together.
you are good and your love endures forever as we sang that phrase over and over this morning we know that we can't oversing that truth you are good and your love endures forever we pray that you would burn that truth on our hearts that we would remember it in those moments when we are full of joy in those moments when we are full of sorrow, in those moments when we are so weary, help us to remember, Lord, that you are good all the time, and your love endures forever. We pray that you would lift us up, Lord, that we might stand on your promises. Remind us every day, Lord, and prepare us 
to serve you and to serve your world. It's in your most holy name that we pray. Amen. You stood before creation. Eternity in your hand. You spoke the earth into motion. My soul now to The scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, 
and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen in rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him, who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled um, us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God, who is reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though Christ were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. I invite you to uh, stand and take a moment to share a word of greeting with others here in worship today. So we are uh, in the middle of a missions uh, emphasis. Yesterday, some events in Buffalo and here, and uh, today, uh, our focus is on on the world. We, quite frankly, we want to be focused on the world all the time. But on this weekend and in the coming weekends, just a little more direction about that. You see in the bulletin on the back page an opportunity to be involved in some outreach locally. Uh, we are uh, planning and preparing and serving a meal at Wellspring. On February 16th, and if you'd like to be a part of that, uh, place in Angelica, uh, you can receive people to contact about that. Also, next, this coming Saturday, the 30th, we are hosting a seminar uh, with the Lilius Trotter Center. And uh, this seminar is going to begin at 9 a.m. and ends at 2. And uh, it's, uh, the seminar is on Muslims, refugees, and immigration, a Christian response. And uh, we will have uh, the folks from the Lilius Trotter Center who will be uh, doing uh, this uh, seminar, and uh, we have people coming from all around Western New York uh, to be a part of this. And if you'd like to be, uh, there's a sign-up sheet in the back. You, if you haven't yet indicated that you'd like to come, you can do that, or contact the church office in the next couple of days, and uh, so we can make sure we have are prepared for your coming. We are um, privileged to welcome Dr. Mike Walters here this morning to uh, preach. Uh, Dr. Walters has spent the last 20 years. Uh, teaching at Houghton College, and the 13 years prior to that, he was the pastor of this church. And so yeah, he has been here, knows Houghton well, knows this church well. And uh, we are excited to have him here. He has a heart for the world. And uh, we are, uh, I know that God is going to speak to us as, uh, he, as Dr. Walter speaks God's word to us. So uh, open our hearts as he comes to share. morning. This past June, my wife and I both retired. Nancy retired from a career as an elementary school teacher, and I as a college professor. 
She spent her days teaching six- and seven-year-olds how to read and write. I spent my days teaching 18- to 22-year-olds how to read and write. (laughs) It really does take a village. I've never doubted but that Nancy had the more difficult job. Honestly, when I think about standing in front of a group of six-year-olds for seven hours a day, it scares the daylights out of me. I would much rather teach New Testament to the Taliban. <laughs> Little kids make me nervous. I am a structured person. And children go through structure like a bag of gummy bears. This is way out of my comfort zone. And so all things considered, working with college students was a good thing for me. It allowed me to become somewhat oblivious, if you will, to the presence of all these little dudes running around. But all that changed for me in August of 2014 when I looked at my grandson. I was not prepared for how that was going to affect me. And then a little over seven months later, it happened again with my second grandson. I'm a Westland, so I call that the second blessing or entire grandpa-fication. And of course, I'm nuts about my grandkids. That's to be expected. But what I did not expect is that suddenly, I find that I'm generally nuts about kids everywhere. And I'm very much aware of them. They're everywhere. Who knew? It's like they've been hiding or something. I'm not only seeing them, I'm walking through stores and shopping malls, and I'm grinning at them. This is so weird. I'm a curmudgeon for Pete's sake. It's one of my gifts. What has happened to me? In a word, it's called reorientation. Reorientation of life is a transformation of the concerns that drive our emotions and of the worldview that drive our opinions and evaluations. It is a radical change of the core lifestyle that drives our habits and actions. The Bible often uses the term repentance to get at this. The Greek word for repent speaks to a radical change of our minds. A new way of thinking about things. In another place, Paul speaks of being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And reorientation is what we mean when we speak about being made new. And here in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is speaking to a very specific aspect or evidence, if you will, of reorientation. In founding this church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul has his hands full. The Corinthian church confronts him with the ultimate game of administrative whack-a-mole. It's just one thing after another with this group. In 1 Corinthians, Paul confronts head-on a gallery of issues that would turn any pastor's head gray. And now here in 2 Corinthians, Paul finds himself defending his apostolic authority against some in the congregation who are impressed with style but are blind to real substance. And even some of his supporters can't understand why Paul spends all of his time traipsing around the Mediterranean world instead of staying there in Corinth and confronting his critics. But Paul has a much larger agenda than securing his alpha dog status in front of a bunch of immature people whose vision of life is still largely determined by the wisdom of the world. 
He spends most of chapter 4 and the early part of chapter 5 trying to explain to his readers that if they would correctly understand him, then they must grasp the kind of eternal perspective under which he operates. He knows that all of us will someday give account for our lives before God. Beyond that, he also grasps that the very essence of what it means to be an apostle is to be sent with a commission. And so Paul unapologetically confesses that he has been compelled by the amazing love of Christ to giving himself wholeheartedly to this commission to share the good news anywhere and everywhere. For Paul, being made new is not some kind of special status. It is not some spiritual achievement award. Rather, it is the entryway into a radically new vision of human life and vocation. That's what you have to keep in mind when you read verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is one of the best known descriptions of Christian conversion in Scripture, and yet lifted from its context, it is easily sold short of its intended purpose. Far too often this verse is is cited primarily to speak of that momentous change that happens in a sinner's life when he or she is born again. And while that's certainly the case, to leave the emphasis there is to miss Paul's main point. Surely many people have powerful testimonies of radical change in their lives when they came to know Christ. But just as many others don't have these breathtaking before and after stories. Do they experience any less of the new creation? I'll never forget hearing Joseph Stowell, the former president at Moody Bible Institute, say to us, the Lord saved me when I was four years old and delivered me from a life of biting my sister. Now, Stahl's point was simply that he was made new every bit as much as the most blatant of sinners who come to Christ. This verse is not primarily intending for us to look backwards at what used to be, but to look ahead at what has become new for us. There are any number of elements in our lives that are radically changed, and Scripture speaks to those things very clearly. But here in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul stresses that to become a new person in Christ is to be immersed in a new way of viewing ourselves, others, and the world Being made new in Christ is intended to radically shift the nature of our values and our priorities as we stop living for ourselves and start living for this one who gave himself for us. It is total reorientation. And the crux of this new orientation that we have centers around what God has intended for his world. And that divine intention is summarized for us here in one word, and that word is reconciliation. In embracing this new creation, we not only let go of the old, but we join ourselves to God's cosmic purpose, his mission for the world. This incredible experience of being made new is but the starting point for the rest of our lives. All of this, says Paul, is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Behind this whole endeavor is a reconciling God. Not an angry, spiteful, or wrathful God, but a God whose love is great enough to take the inconceivable step of self-sacrifice in order to bring reconciliation to all of his creation. To reconcile is to restore friendship or harmony. It is to make consistent or congruent. As we look around our world today, or even around our immediate neighborhoods, 
it would be hard to think of anything more needed than reconciliation. Our world literally screams with the incongruity of hatred and violence and disharmony. Whether we're talking about the divide between religious or political ideologies, the increasing gap between the haves and the have-nots, or the continuing fractures among people along the lines of race, gender, or class, our world desperately needs reconciliation, harmony. Week before last, I was teaching a seminar at Northeastern Seminary in Rochester, We were looking at one of the works of James Cone, probably the most prominent African-American theologian in America these days. His book entitled The Cross and the Lynching Tree. It is without a doubt the most gut-wrenchingly painful piece of theology I've ever read. There were 12 pastors in this seminar. Seven of them were African-American. And I sat there and listened to these wonderful pastors share the pain and the anguish that they endure every day dealing with the repercussions of our fractured and hateful world. And I was reminded anew how needed is reconciliation. And I was further reminded that until all of us in the church accept our God-given role as agents of reconciliation, that there will be no healing as God intends it. See here that Paul says that God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We have not been made new to twiddle our spiritual thumbs until we get into heaven. We have been recruited by God's spirit to join in spreading the good news of Christ and to be living, breathing embodiments of God's reconciling purposes for the world. So we are not only reconciled to God personally, but we are now enlisted in the church's vocational purpose in the world. What is God up to in this world anyway? In a word, reconciliation. The foundational plot line of the entire Bible is the story of a creator God who refuses to give up on a wayward creation and takes costly steps to bring about a full and everlasting reconciliation of the cosmos. And he has awakened you and me and all of us who are made new to join him in this redemptive endeavor. I recognize fully that in one respect, I am a most odd choice for a missions weekend speaker. I don't have any slides to show. I don't have any harrowing snake stories. As far as I know, I don't know any witch doctors. I don't fit the traditional stereotypical picture of a mission speaker at all. Unless, unless you get what Paul's trying to say here. Because in reality... As a baptized Christian, I am a missionary. What else could I possibly be? And I'm standing here looking at a room full of missionaries. You may never go far from home. You may may never take up some of the traditional forms of service that are historically identified with missions. But if you have been made new in Christ, your vocational identity is to be part of God's reconciling work in this world. One of the great things about being retired is I can go back and read books I read years ago. I've been rereading the work of the Quaker philosopher D. Elton Trueblood. 
And he says this, he says, It is hard to read the New Testament in depth and not begin to realize that the early church in its period of greatest vitality was very different from most parts of the conventional church in our own day. Perhaps the most striking feature from our contemporary point of view is that all of the early Christians were missionaries. They did not leave the evangelistic task to either professional evangelists or to pastors to whom they paid salaries, for these did not exist. He says, as we read the truly exciting story of the early church persevering as it did in the face of incredible odds, we sense the difference between the task of merely supporting missionaries and of being missionaries. The early church did not have a missionary arm. It was a missionary movement. Christopher Wright echoes this when he says, it's not so much that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. This is our purpose. This is our calling, our God-given vocation. Someone has said that your vocation is what you can't not do. If you're a new creature and creation in Christ, then what you can't not do is to be an agent of God's reconciling grace to the world. Perhaps you noticed when you looked in the bulletin today that a current popular movie stole my sermon title. It's so annoying when that happens. It's all right, I'll get over it. I suspect that franchise needs all the help it can get. I mean, droids, wookies, lightsabers. Like anybody's going to buy into that nonsense. But it's an interesting story. It's the story of a galaxy where a small republic finds itself fighting the powers of darkness and evil. And in reality, they have very little chance for success. Until something called the Force awakens. And strange as it seems, the power, this power, this force, is more than adequate to the task of securing the triumph of the people of that threatened world. Our task of taking the message of reconciliation into our broken world today seems impossible until we rightly consider the power of the force, which is God's church. You find that unbelievable. But I'm telling you that God did not miscalculate when he committed to us, his church, the ministry of reconciliation. Just yesterday I read a quote from a United Methodist bishop who said, the most powerful force at work in our world today is a local church led by the Holy Spirit. But the force will awaken only when Christians understand the idea that the missionary vocation is universal. The church cannot function as God intends it to function unless the members accept the fact that each one made new is to become a part of Christ's reconciling purpose for the world. There are meant to be as many missionaries as there are believers. Most of the time, being a missionary does not mean leaving home. It simply means Engagement in the mission of reconciliation. The only way to be loyal to the fire of Christ is to spread it. Thomas Oden said that the church does not elicit mission, but rather mission elicits, awakens, and empowers the church. The very purpose of the coming together of the community is in order that they may be fully prepared to be sent. They come together to receive grace, and then they scatter to declare grace. 
They gather to hear the word of God's reconciling love for the fallen world and then depart to embody that love within the world. So what? So what are you going to do with this? What are we supposed to do? This is the one and only time I will ever quote Bill Belichick. Do your job. That's what he tells his players. Just do your job. Paul says, therefore, we are Christ ambassadors. Ambassadors, not tourists. Ambassadors, not day trippers. Ambassadors, not collectors of cultural knickknacks. Ambassadors, representatives of another kingdom, a kingdom where Jesus is Lord. What would it mean for you to faithfully represent God's reconciling intent for this world? What would it mean for all of us to take seriously our vocational call to be agents of reconciliation in this world? What would it mean for us to stop looking at other people through the lens of the world and start looking at them as recipients of God's new creation? As ambassadors of Christ's reconciling kingdom, how should we respond to the great issues of our day, of immigration and terrorism, and confronting the culture of violence in this country? Racism, justice and equality for everyone. What would an ambassador of Christ do? At minimum, it entails getting the salt out of the salt shaker. Ambassadors who spend all of their waking hours hanging out at the embassy do their country a grave disservice. Kevin Van Hooser says followers of Christ must do more than observe this, his story from a safe distance because there is a, a difference between an onlooker and a witness. The onlooker observes but does not, but does not take part in the action. By way of contrast, the one giving witness is an active participant. Churches filled with onlookers is hardly God's intention. So until the Christian church takes its vocation seriously, the church will continue to appear to the rest of the world as little more than an overly anxious social club. It's interesting to think that the residents of Corinth in A.D. 55 would have no trouble at all pointing out to you the location of the Temple of Apollo. They could easily give you directions to it. But if you ask them the location of the Church of Jesus Christ, they would have been stumped. They could not have pointed to a building at a certain address, because there were no such structures at that time. If Christian witness is relegated to a building with four walls, the harm comes not in what occurs within these particular walls, but in the consequent easing of the conscience about what goes on elsewhere. And so the question this morning for this weekend is simply this, where is Houghton Church? Is the answer a street address on Route 19? That huge field of solar panels that lies just beyond the field of dreams there north of town is an impressive sight, isn't it? And there it sits day by day. According to some good folk in North Carolina, slowly draining the power from our sun. My science faculty friends assure me that is not the case. No, those panels are the visible evidence of power. 
a force, if you will. And the force represented in those panels has incredible potential, potential that is surely about something merely beyond heating up the bagel toaster in the college dining room. It's an energy force that needs to be utilized to its fullest potential. Perhaps better than most, I know well the history of this church, and I know that Houghton Church has an incredible history of worldwide influence over the years with regards to the mission of God in this world. Few churches cast a greater shadow for God and his kingdom, but you must not allow contentment and pride in a triumphant past to defer in any way the urgency of the present. God in Christ has taken the all-important step to bring reconciliation to his world. He desires all of us to join him as agents of reconciliation. A few weeks ago, I was watching the Kennedy Center Honors. They were acknowledging the work of the actor Cicely Tyson. And as part of her tribute, they brought out the gospel singer C.C. Winans, who started to sing that great hymn of the church, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. And it was so interesting as they panned the audience to see celebrities and politicians and power brokers with big tears coursing down their cheeks. There is something about the possibility of being made new, of being reconciled with God that resonates deep within the human heart. And maybe instead of telling people that they are judged, why don't we just give them the good news of a God who in Christ has reconciled all things to himself? For this we have been made new. Rise up, O church of God. Have done with lesser things. Give heart, soul, mind, and strength to serve the King of Kings. In response to the word, uh, we're going to spend some time praying together to pray for um, our own hearts, pray for our world. If you would like to offer your prayers here at the altar rail, please come and join me as we pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of Christ who has come to reconcile the world to yourself, and that includes us. Thank you for the reconciling work that you've done in our hearts. Make us new. We thank you for what you've done in the world. There are still so many people in so many situations so much hurt and pain and struggle that needs your reconciling grace. Give us a heart to want to be a part of that. Father, we do pray for this world in which we live. This world of great hurt and pain and violence and struggle. Father, we think of our brothers and sisters in Iran who live in the middle of far more of this than we do. And yet, Lord, we see the effects of the church as more and more people are coming to see you for who you are. And we pray that you will give to our brothers and sisters their courage and strength and the assurance of your spirit Father, may their witness inspire us about ours. We pray, Father, for the work of your kingdom in, uh, in your world and closer places. We think about people who this weekend are suffering and grieving from these, 
the storm. People have died. People are stranded. Lord, we think particularly of the most vulnerable in places of cities who have no warm place to go, no safe place to be. Father, we ask that you would be merciful to them and that your church, your people, would be a a place of refuge for them. We think, Father, of of the ministry of our area. We think of what you're doing in the through the Wiscoy Baptist Church, and we are so grateful for their ministry and, and for Pastor Bennett, and we ask that you would continue to bless their ministry, their outreach, their service to that community and beyond. And Lord, as we think about the ministry of our own church, we thank you for what is happening in the, the, in the ministry of Koinonia. We pray that this Sunday night time of worship would truly continue to speak into hearts and lives and and that it would be a place of restoration and reconciliation. And Father, we pray for our own needs here. We continue to ask for your comfort in those, on those who grieve, whatever form that grief may take. We pray for all who are struggling with health concerns and ask for your grace and mercy of healing upon each one. We ask, Father, that you will continue to stir within us as a people a heart for you and therefore a heart for your world. We thank you, Father, for all that you are doing in us and through us. Continue to make us more like Christ as we continue to open our hearts and our lives to you. Make us as individuals and as a church beacons of hope and light, and may we be agents of reconciliation. We ask all of this through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we continue in worship, I'd like to invite the ushers forward to assist us as we give back through our tithes and offerings. Brothers, let us come together. to be done. We will come reaching out from our comfort, and they will know us by our love. Sisters, we were made for kindness. We can pierce the darkness as he shines the song of healing, and they will know us by our love. It's time is now, come church arise, love with his hands, see with his eyes, bind it around you, let it
reconciles the wayward heart through Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. We are reconciled by love. We are reconciled by love. of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.